Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am, uh, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know, my name is Sam, but uh, a lot of you should. And uh, glad you're here. I'm glad there's more than three people here. That's just fantastic. Um, wasn't sure what was going to happen. So, uh, but we would have preached just as hard and, and uh, met just as long. So glad that you're with us. It is an exciting day in our church. Um, I'm just it really just uh, restraining myself from the joy that's going to happen this, uh, this evening. Uh, and Satan is so clever. Uh, what a slime ball. Gives me a cold. I never have cold, ever. Uh, on the day, we just happen to be uh, preaching a third sermon uh, this, uh, this week. So, uh, hey, you know, God will be praised and it will happen. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians. So if you open your Bibles to the, the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're in the New Testament... You start with Matthew, and then Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels, the story of Jesus, His life, death, and resurrection. Um, And then we have Acts, which is the story after His ascension to heaven and what the church did in following His great commission. You have the book of Romans, written by Paul, which is a nice bit of theology in there. And then you have the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. If you missed last week, we go verse by verse through the Old Testament, the Old Testament, or New Testament in this case, and uh, through books of the Bible, and uh, last week was the introduction to uh, Corinthians, and so if you missed it, you can download it, it's fantastic, and uh, you will learn a tremendous amount about what the situation is in Corinth, and who Paul is, and and who he's writing to. Um, This is really a letter, as I said, and it's written to, uh, just by way of a little bit of review, to a very young church. Uh, in a young city, it's probably uh, somewhere around 100 years old, it's being rebuilt, and it's a, it's a cool church, if you will, in the middle of the city, and it is growing and thriving and doing well, um, but Paul is writing because uh, he received some information about this church that he planted, and it is struggling with every serious problem that you can imagine. And this is the Christians in the church, so he's not writing to the culture. And the problems include that some people are sleeping together, some are divorcing one another, uh, some are suing one another, and uh, there are several people getting drunk at the communion table. And so you've got a pretty messed up situation uh, of a church that Paul planted, that he has pastored, that he has cared for, and now have done everything wrong, everything opposite of what Paul probably would have hoped for. Uh, So he has every right to be angry. Not to say that he is, but we would certainly say he has a right to be irritated, agitated, disappointed, and angry. And so this is what the the letter feels like for a large portion of it. It's just a hard-worded scolding, if you will. But I want to make sure we, we don't just read it that way. That we don't just look at this this book that's very instructive, that's very severe at times, and just see it as a, a scolding lecture from an angry pastor. Uh, in order to, to do that, it's, it's, or to avoid that, it's important to understand exactly how Paul felt when he wrote this letter and how he felt about these people. And so we don't have to guess by God's grace. He's told us. In 2 Corinthians, he references this letter that he wrote in speaking about what he felt. And so if you... Turn right over, I can just read it though, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, he talks about this letter that we're studying in the second letter, and he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, 
not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That's the heart of this letter. Paul wants the church to repent, which means he wants them to turn from their sin and toward Jesus. He wants them to stop sinning. He wants them to change their behavior. And he takes no joy in admonishing or confronting the sin in those he loves. It was hard for him to write this letter. It's hard for any of us to speak truth to those we love. And he did this with many tears and anguish because he truly loves this people. And so that's what makes for me this text that we're studying today that much more remarkable. Because if you have a family, if you have friends, if you are pastoring a church and they are messing up and doing the very opposite of what you've told them to do time and time again, my first response, or maybe your first response, would be to write a letter that says, what the snarf are you doing? What's wrong with you? Or maybe something more colorful, but snarf's pretty colorful, okay? But that's not what Paul does. And it's important to see Paul's just approach, because when you'll see his heart and what he truly hopes will happen in this church and how it will happen. Um, if Mary Poppins, which is a fantastic movie, love Julie Andrews, okay? Mary Poppins taught us anything. <clears throat> she taught us this. It takes a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Okay? So if 90% of Corinthians taste like cough syrup, the verses we're looking at today are the sugar. And maybe it will help that to be received a little bit better. Because without doubt, hard words are never received if gentle words are never ever spoken. If hard words and criticism and discouragement and this is what is wrong and this is what needs to change is the only thing that's ever spoken, any encouragement you try to speak will not be received. You will always feel discouraged. You will always feel criticized. You will always feel despondent. It reminds me, um, like when your wife, guys, asks if she looks fat in that dress. Guys have asked me that question, what am I supposed to say? And I say, tell her she looks fat in the dress, if she looks fat. Shouldn't I lie to her? Look, here's why you shouldn't tell her that. If this is the only time you've ever made a comment about her beauty, is telling her she doesn't look good in what she's asking you, yeah, you're, you're, you're done. you got a problem. Because what you should be doing 99% of the time, without her asking, is encouraging her, is telling her how beautiful she looks in whatever she's wearing, and building her up so that when she does ask, or when you do have to speak something, guess what? It will be received just fine. Because you have filled her up with all kinds of love. And the same goes with any kind of admonishment or speaking of maybe difficult truths. And you can't fake that. You can't fake that. And so Paul, to begin his letter, before he speaks one word of admonishment, which there will be a lot, he spends some time speaking over a hundred words of grace. So if you look with me at verse 4 in chapter 1, through verse 9, of which we'll only go through the first half of verse 9 and deal with the rest next week. It says this, I give thanks to my God always for you, 
because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before Your throne humbly, knowing we are adopted as children, but knowing You are King of all. We ask, Lord God, that You will move me out of the way, that Holy Spirit, You will speak the words that need to be spoken. You will comfort those who need comfort and convict those who need conviction. But use Your Word, which is powerful, to transform us from the inside out. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, for all that can be seen and heard in this church, you would not think that there is very much to be thankful for. Not this church, but Corinth. Okay? Everything that he has heard, everything that's been reported to him is like they're confused, they're divided, all these things. Yet Paul proves himself to be a real, genuine true pastor. He is a gentle teacher and what we find is a faithful shepherd. And in recent months I spent uh, a little bit of time just kind of looking through some of the passages where Paul describes his feelings about the churches that he planted or that he's pastored. And throughout most of his letters, both himself and many members of his team that he mentions, they write with and about a deep affection they have for the churches. Here's one example out of the book of Philippians where he writes in chapter 1, verse 3, again, thanking God as how he starts the letter. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of me of grace, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. I love verse 8. For God is my witness. Swearing to the Lord here, right? For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This guy loves the Philippian church. And he loves the Corinthian church. His attitude really convicted me. It hit me hard as not only the um, leader of a family, if you will, but the pastor of a family of families. Questioning my own affection my own love for those that are in my care. And the reason I questioned that or or just really was convicted because I think if we're honest, if I'm honest as a pastor, if you're honest as a parent, it's very easy to become critical and irritated and agitated and frustrated with what we see on the surface and hear in the church or family. It's easy to get bugged. It's easy to focus on those things and not see past those things. 
They go, I don't like this. I wish this would change. I wish this was better. But Paul shows us differently in writing to this church that we know is messed up. It's not like you guys just are not really doing enough Bible studies. Okay, These people are messed up. But he writes to them as a pastor shepherd, a shepherd who knows his sheep well, a shepherd who loves his sheep so much he's willing to look past what might be the dirty wool, right? Seeing the sheep. And he does hope and plan for his letter to change their behavior. That is his hope. He wants them to act differently. He wants them to think differently. He wants them to behave differently. But he leads not with what is wrong. He doesn't lead with a list of, let me tell you all the things you guys are screwing up that I heard about. He leads with encouragement. He leads with what is right. He leads with grace and with hope. And though he knows, as we think about our own families, our own kids, our friends, our church, though he knows that this particular church is immature, guess what? He sees them as beautiful. Though he knows that they are charismaniacs. You'll see that. They are like spiritually going all over the place. He knows that they are gifted. And though he knows that they are sinful, he sees them as filled with grace. He has a genuine love for this church. He feels responsible for them. And he possesses a joy about them as if he or as if they were his children. And even says as much later in the letter. And so I really was struck by this as I looked at what Paul wrote here. I looked at what Paul wrote in his other letters. And I was struck really by my lack of joy and gratefulness of late. The fact that, and maybe you're like me, I seem to have an easier time identifying things that agitate and irritate as opposed to those things worthy of celebration. Now, being the uh, negative Nancy or critical Carl or dumpy Dwayne, sorry Dwayne, Carl or Nancy if you're in here, right? I find it hard to imagine, like put my myself in Paul's shoes, how he could look at this church and actually have joy and thankfulness over what is so messed up and doing nothing seemingly right. And so as I prepared for this sermon, ironically, this week, it's really not ironic, it's more providential, it's like God incidental, not coincidental. God just broke me. He just broke me. And I didn't think that this is how sermon would go, or the experience I would have, but I'd, I'd like to share a little bit, give you a little insight into Sam's heart. I would, su- I would say that the last seven years, so the planting of the church and my, my role um, that I'm in, have probably been some of the most wonderful, horrible, difficult of my life. It's both beautiful and terrible at the same time. It's difficult, and it's really worn. And for whatever reason, and I have no explanation, I can't point to certain things, 2012, this last year, 
proved to be one of the most difficult. I didn't have some major devastation in my life. I didn't, can't point to like one thing that I go, if this wouldn't have happened, everything would have been great. But 2012 was difficult. And as I watched, like the end of the year, they always have those like 2012 rundown events uh, for, for the world. It looked like 2012 was a pretty messed up year for everybody. Like I'd watch these things and they're like, okay, events of 2012, and they're all depressing. Like there was tragedies and all these things were like, oh, it's horrible. Like they had no like good things. So I'm glad to see 2012 go. But my year started um, last January pretty heavy, and it, it got heavier as the year went on. And it's only in the last couple months that I really realized how joyless I'd become. And I remember on more than one occasion, lying in my bed, maybe you've had this experience, maybe I'm the only psycho-crazy one in here, but laying in my bed, staring at the ceiling, and my wife asking me, what's wrong with you? And I didn't go, well, what do you mean what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with me. I'm fine. What's your problem? It wasn't like that, although that may have happened at some point in the history. It was more like, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel irritated at everything. And she said, yeah, I know. The kids know, too. So thank you, Mrs. Gift of Encouragement, right? Because she is wonderful. And she was right. So I really began to think and to reflect on, on what was happening. And there was just no rest. No rest in my mind, no rest in my soul. There was no unconfessed sin. It just didn't seem like anything was going right. Like everything was just a little off. Everything had to be a little bit bigger, better, just different. And that went with my family, my children, looking at them like, you know, why can't you, why have to tell you the same thing seven times in one hour, right? Why? I was joyless, and I confess that I had, from all outside appearances, little joy, little love, very little affection for my family and even my church family, although I might have been able to fake you out. Now, if you're like me, people can get very good at covering that up, especially in the church, right? Well, I don't even want to think we're joyless. We want to be zippity-doo-dah Christians. I'm happy all the time. Praise Jesus. Amen. But the truth is, um, I am very good at covering that up by just finding something to do, right? A distraction. If I can accomplish something, I don't have to deal with what might be something that is painful. And what that can usually lead to with type A type of guys like me is a guy sucking his thumb, laying in the fetal position in the bathroom, crying for his mom. Um, Praise God that did not happen, okay? Because God honestly tends to speak to individuals the way that they need to be spoken to. And sometimes they need to be broken like that. And sometimes they have experiences maybe like like I had. God was much much more gracious to me. And here's what happened recently, like recently, like Monday. Funny how it just happens to happen this week. I'm preaching this sermon. I have Mondays off, spend the time usually going to the dentist and 
making appointments, those types of things, and just spending time with Kalen. And uh, so we're at home, and my wife is an incredible organizer. Like, she organizes for the fun of it. She would come to your home and organize it for you, okay? She would, like, take joy in that. So everything is put in its place, and so we're going through this cabinet. And at the top of the cabinet, there's a bag or some kind of video bag. I take it down. It's an old video camera that's old and, like, you don't, would never use, right, because it pretty much has a crank on the side. It's so old. And so I go, let's just get rid of this thing. We're not using it. We're not going to remember the last time we taped with it. So I'm packaging it up to give it to Goodwill, and she says, well, make sure there's not a video in it. <clears throat> okay. So I open back it up and pop it out, and once you know, there's a video in there. Take it out, and it says Emerson, which is our daughter, Emerson's first birthday. Okay. This would be fun to watch. Fun, right? So we're excited. I plug it in, and we turn it on. Oh, my Lord. He crushed me. It ended up being an hour's worth of film. That extended over about a year's worth of time for our family. It's a family movie. Fisher, my son, who's almost 12, was only four. Landon is two, same age as my youngest son now. And Emerson was two weeks old. And so what that means is uh, God couldn't have been more direct about his message. Why? Because the time frame was one year before we planted the church. In fact, the film ended two weeks before we publicly launched as Damascus Road Church. I mean, the the providence of that is ridiculous. Especially the week that I'm preaching on this particular text, the week that we're planting Snohomish. And in this movie was a picture of pre-pastor Sam and pre-church family. And Kayla and I watched the film and I wept. And I wept. And I wept. And I say weep and not cry because it was much more than crying. And I Wept for lots of reasons. Um, I wept because my kids were really cute. And they were really funny. And um, I wept because I remembered a time in life was much more simple and carefree. And I saw my son, who now is, you know, thinking about things of what people think of him and identity issues that come with age that at age four you could care less about. And I saw a joy there that was just awesome. But I wept most of all um, because of what I saw in myself. And what I saw was and heard was a man who I would describe as much more joyful. And in that moment, through that video I didn't even know existed, God graciously opened my heart and my eyes to see the blessing that my life is. 
And he showed me the beauty of his undeserved grace again. That maybe I had forgotten or allowed to be covered. I realized that um, in my family and even in this family of families, our church, uh, I had come to naturally only look at or see what was wrong, what was broken, what needed fixed, and focus on those things. And get irritated by those things. And I became very task-oriented. I became um, very dedicated to, to building and committed to correcting and, and fixing. So driven to work that I had ceased to enjoy the work of God. I had ceased to enjoy the provision that God had graciously given in so many countless ways. I had ceased to rest in God's goodness and I had ceased to trust in God's grace, His power to fix anything that may need fixing. And this ceasing produced an irritable, withdrawn, short-tempered, unaffectionate man, husband, father, and even pastor. I lost sight of grace. Just lost sight of grace. And I had allowed the disappointment of a moment really overshadow the grace in that moment. And so today I I stand before you very thankful. Because for a lot of us, and maybe for you, it's a lot easier to see um, the graces when things are going the way we want them to. Um, When things are happy, when we have enough money to pay the bills, when relationships are going well, when uh, we have the job that we want, uh, the friends that we want, when we're not sick. Oh gosh, God is so gracious, and He is. But what, unfortunately, when things don't go our way, or things happen that we don't like, it's very difficult to see the grace. It blinds us sometimes to what is there. Because there are a lot of things my kids do that I don't like. I'm sure you don't have that problem if you're a parent, right? There are things in the church that rub me the wrong way. There are people, Christians, in my life that really frustrate the snot out of me. But what if all those things that are so seemingly bad and broken and irritating are actually the evidences of God's grace? What if? When I think of my kids or even the church, I I think, well, what if below that aggressiveness is actually a gift of leadership? Or what if behind that hilarious but really inappropriate joking is a gift of creativity? Or what if underneath that know-it-all arguing is actually the gift of teaching? Or what if Within that really hypercriticism, where you can pick out everything that's wrong and show is actually the gift of discernment used the wrong way. In other words, can you, can I thank God for a gift that He has given someone else, even if it's being abused or used the wrong way? Can my focus go away from the person and focus on and trust in the grace of God? that's making that thing actually possible. 
See, Paul thanks God for two ways the Corinthians have been enriched by God's grace. Speech and knowledge. And by speech, you'll hear it constantly throughout Corinthians. They have issues with speech and knowledge. And by speech, it's not just speak, speech about God, but it's actually speech from God. Like prophecy. Like preaching. Like confession. Like singing. Like tongues. And knowledge is kind of used in this really non-technical sense to, to talk about the general gift of understanding and reason. So in other words, these guys are big talkers. They talk a lot. And they argue a lot. But as we get into the letter, what we see is that Paul is actually thanking them for the very gifts that are being abused and responsible for causing divisions and disappointments and competition and coveting and self-promotion. Those are the things he's thanking God for at the beginning of this letter. I mean, how can Paul be so thankful when there's so much going wrong with these things? Doesn't he want them to change? Why would you build them up this way? It's like, man, you're really good at arguing and disobeying, right? Why would he say that? It doesn't sound like he's trying to change them. It sounds like he's the same thing our world does. Like the key to change is building self-esteem. And they'll be so encouraged by building self-esteem, they'll just want to be different, naturally. I don't think that he's trying to correct your behavior by building self-esteem because it's pretty clear the Corinthians don't have a self-esteem problem. Just like our culture doesn't have a self Did you know that you have no self-esteem problem? Though your culture says that you do. There was a recent study, I I think I put this link somewhere, I don't remember, it's in the notes um, online, but... There was a study done like over like last 50 years of just culture and people, and what they said was like students, for example, in our culture, are more likely than ever to call themselves gifted, even though test scores and every other measurable thing says otherwise. I mean, we have a culture of, of, of narcissists who use stuff like Facebook to fool themselves into believing they have hundreds of friends. Twitter to convince themselves that they're worth following. Even video games that help them believe they can be Olympians and Formula One drivers and rock stars. Not to say that any of those things are sinful. This is to say that we don't have a self-esteem problem. What Paul is trying to do here is not just build their self-esteem. What he's trying to do is increase their esteem of God. Not their awesomeness. He's like, dude, yeah, you guys are awesome. But God is the one responsible for this awesomeness. And the basis of Paul's thanksgiving is not the Corinthians themselves, but the grace of God which came through believing the news of Jesus Christ. So he's not trying to turn themselves into becoming delusional narcissists. He's trying to turn them away from these gifts that are great to the gift giver. He's trying to turn them away from themselves towards the source of true life, the source of power, the source of all growth, with growth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul finds his joy, I believe, in remembering these graces. And more than that, he actually sees this 
future grace of what is possible, and he starts speaking about the second coming of Christ, and we'll talk about that. But in other words, his, his affection and his joy and his thankfulness is coming from changing his focus away from the surface, away from what is irritating and agitating and things that aren't going right, and talking about and focusing on the grace of Jesus. And that grace is so powerful when he focuses about it. And he talks about the grace that he experienced. It's not just the grace and the stuff he has. But the undeserved favor of God who would save him a sinner. And me, the undeserved son of God who would be given a wife and a family and a beautiful church and wonderful friends. That has the power to make you so joyful. And when Paul's case, he is overjoyed to begin his letter and tell a divided, immoral, argumentative, ungrateful church this. I thank Jesus for you because I see Jesus in you. And not only that, I trust, he'll say, that Jesus has you. And I believe that Jesus is not done with you. And you take that truth and you imply that to, apply that to your family, your marriage, your friends, your church. I thank Jesus for you. Why? Because I see Jesus in you. And I know Jesus has you. And I know He's not done with you. That will change the way you view Everything. He tells them flat out that Jesus is going to sustain them. He sees that word. He will sustain you to the end. Right? I know you're screwing up, Corinth. I know that you know you're screwing up. And I could easily get very stressed, very fearful, very irritated. But he says, no matter how much you screw up, I know that Jesus and your trust in what He did on the cross for you makes you guiltless forever. In other words, their innocence before the Lord is not in their hands. There is a joy for Paul. There is a joy for pastors. There is a joy for parents and for all people who believe in Jesus to know that Jesus is the one who saves And Jesus is the one who keeps people saved. No matter what's happening. So he's looking at this church that looks very much like they're seemingly unsaved. He's like, I know Jesus has you. And I know he will keep you guiltless before God. We need to be reminded of our guiltlessness and innocence before God based on the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Because if you begin to believe that you are not guiltless before God, you're beginning to believe that your work is the thing that made you guiltless in the first place. And if you believe that about yourself, guess what? You start to believe that about everyone else. And you begin to focus on everything that's wrong and everything needs to be fixed and all the work that needs to be done as opposed to what is already done in Jesus Christ. He also tells them that Jesus is coming again. This is the last time you remind yourself that Jesus is coming again. He tells them, remember, this is not all there is. Whether it be good, whether it be bad. And in this case, Corinth views himself as very good. He's like, oh, don't forget the story's not done. He does not only enjoy the grace of 
Christ's first coming, the grace that he sees, but he is looking toward the grace, the undeserved favor, and the hope of what is coming in Jesus' second coming. Because when the Bible speaks of Jesus' second coming, guess what it says? We will be changed. He writes in Philippians. Our citizenship, he says in verse 20 of chapter 3, is in heaven. And from it we will await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We will be changed. Not only is the foundation for His thankfulness and the grace of God, or you know, on the grace of God, any hope for future change is on the grace of God. He tells the Corinthians, man, you guys have everything. You lack nothing. You have received it all. But don't go too excited because God's not done with you. There is an end coming. There is a revelation to occur. You have not arrived. And as wonderful as you are, if things are going well, even this state is not the final state. We await glory. We await glory. We're looking toward final transformation. And it's not enough just to speak and enjoy the thankfulness of the moment and be, oh, I'm so glad that, you know, gave me these kids. There is a hope that needs to be spoken. We need to speak about the grace and the hope of what is coming. To remind us all of of the eternal, to remind us all that we are still plagued in many ways by this flesh. But there will be a day when we don't struggle with sin. And there will be a day we'll be freed from this body. And there will be a day when we are glorified. And Paul knows that, look, I hope so much for you, but if I don't see it in you today, I know I'm going to see it then. I know I'm going to see it on that day. And so that's where my hope is. So let me conclude this. This letter that's going to be a hard letter, he begins with, thankfulness. And he sets the stage for his correction by speaking from his heart about the joy he has for this church. And his hope for change in the Corinthian church, and he's trying to tell the Corinthians this as well. It doesn't rest in them. Their hope for change is not about their capacity to become less divided and less immoral and more loving and more faithful in any way. It doesn't begin or end with men's faithfulness at all. Paul has absolutely zero confidence in their ability to change themselves. Though I certainly have responsibility to shepherd my children, I am not the one that can change their hearts. That's why Paul says in this last verse, he writes, God is faithful. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. So while he hopes for change, while he commands change, he knows it is all grace. Praise God that our righteousness before God is not dependent upon our faithfulness. And he's going to speak some hard things to Corinth. He's pretty much said, you guys are messed up. Like if there's ten things to change, you need to change eleven. 
But he wants to remind them, God's faithful. Though you are woefully unfaithful now, God is faithful and you need to lean into him. Because it's not about how we succeed or whether we fail. Our joy in the moment and our hope for change in the next moment moment comes from the faithfulness of God and Jesus Christ many moments ago. It's about Jesus who was perfectly faithful and Jesus who did not and will not ever fail. It is not about your faithfulness to God. It's about God's faithfulness to us. And that's where our trust is and that's where our hope is and that's where we find our joy. And this is something that we need to preach for ourselves every day. I actually believe Paul is just bleeding out what he preaches to himself every day. And I've begun since Monday to preach this to myself. And you know what happens? Those children, or I'll use my son as an example. Instead of seeing that 12-year-old that I think needs to be fixed, needs to be a little cleaner, needs to not joke, needs to not argue, You know what I see? I see that four-year-old. I see that four-year-old whom I love. And even when he disobeys, I'm grieved, but I love. And that's how God sees you. That's how God sees me. With this filter of grace that's unbelievable. That we cannot imagine that we go, we do not deserve, we're old enough to know we don't deserve it. And yet he says, I love you. And he doesn't just do it one time, right? Paul's not like just starting with this thankfulness like, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll give them some thankfulness in the beginning. And then I'll punch him at the end. He says in the very beginning, verse 4, not that I thanked God for you, but that he is always giving thanks because of the grace of God. It's a daily thing. And if you don't focus on the grace of God in your family, in your church, you will focus on that which makes you irritable and angry, that which is not healthy and certainly not Christ-centered. The life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not supposed to be that thing we just preach on Easter once a year. It's the thing that is our foundation and our lifeblood. We must never forget especially as we see others, because this is where it starts when you stop seeing yourself this way, that we are more sinful than we'll ever admit. But you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. That's the gospel. And the key to life is not figuring out how to be a good person or live a better life. The key to life is admitting that you can't do any of these things without Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of this letter. And it's beautiful. And it sets the stage for saying some hard words because there's a firm foundation on the gospel. And I pray that our church and any church we plant, including Snohomish this evening, will never become some big religious box full of stuffy, joyless, angry, ungrateful prudes who focus way too much on behaving before you believe. I pray that we are a joy-filled, loving, grateful community of broken people who know the grace of Jesus and have found acceptance in Jesus Christ who loved us well before we obeyed.
We obey not to be accepted, but we are accepted. Therefore, we obey, as Pastor Keller would say. And so know that and pray for us as we go into Snohomish. We're not going in with fantastic music. We don't offer amazing community. It's not the service that we have to bring. The only thing we have to offer that city and this world is the news of the grace of Jesus Christ who says, you trust in me and I will forgive you. And I will kill that old self that is you and bury it forever and raise you up to be a new. And through you, do amazing things. That is the gospel of grace. And I pray that's always our foundation. And I'll tell you what, it's only been a week, but I'm a snarf of a lot more joyful than I've ever been. Because God has shown me the grace. Yeah, I know. It's awesome. Let me pray.